Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. Hey, today's episode, we are bringing you a powerhouse, a rock star. Her name is Pat Ogden, and she is the director of the Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute. She founded it. She also is the co-founder of Hakomi with Ron Kurtz. Now, what is Hakomi, that crazy word, and what is sensory motor therapy? Why make it complicated, right? Basically, she is the person who put together, very originally, more depth psychology with the body and with somatic awareness, mindfulness, attachment, neuroscience. It's really great in working with trauma survivors, including prisoners, people disenfranchised and marginalized groups. She has a particular interest in multicultural issues. So you'll hear that. That's fantastic. We're super excited about that. So that's the backstory. One quick caveat is that the sound is not quite up to, well, it's not up to our normal standards. It's a backup file. This is the real story. It's a backup file, but the content was so good we wanted to publish it. And for many of you, once you start listening to it and get acclimated, you won't even notice. But for some of you, I know that are more sensitive to some of the, the way the recording itself actually takes place. Audio files, you know, people can, that can just hear that and is distracted by that. I just wanted to give you a heads up that it is not our best sound, despite all of our efforts to try to clean it up. So without further ado, Sue Marriott, that's little old me, <laughs> will be interviewing Pat Ogden and it'll pick up right with uh, Dr. Ogden speaking about her background. Let's do it. Even as a child, I, I started studying dance when I was about seven, and I was very athletic, very much an outdoors person. So for myself, I think my own body has always been a resource for me. I still spend a lot of time in nature, hiking, and I do yoga every day, and when it really started to become applied to psychotherapy was in the early 70s when I was working in a psychiatric hospital. And I was teaching yoga and dance, both. And I noticed that the patients who did both those classes seemed to get better. And now I understand that much more clearly through Steve Porges' polyvagal theory. But then I understood it as just there must be something about the body. When people use their bodies in different ways, it can have an effect on their psychology and their mental health. So now I think of it in terms of the dance classes were very fast-paced. Back in the 70s, everybody was doing line dances, very simple steps to follow. So I'd have a whole room of people with various diagnoses following these dances and there's high energy and we can think of it of it now as it was a way of stimulating the the sympathetic nervous system without fear whereas in trauma the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated with fear with the fight or flight or cry for help responses and then the yoga class on the other hand it was very slow paced very relaxing it was almost a yin yoga practice although I didn't understanding yoga at that time. So through the lens of the polyvagal theory, that class was stimulating the dorsal vagal system without fear. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to look back on that and see the perhaps scientific underpinnings of why those patients seem to get better. So that was my, my first 
real application of work with the body to mental health. That's really great. And it makes me think that, you know, by starting already inside your own body, that just almost intuitively you were able to, without the cognitive understanding of it, but just intuitively you came to that, you know, not even quite knowing, you know, the specifics of how that was working. Right. No, I was really just following my own interests. And my own body's always been my laboratory. I'm always trying trying things out of my own body, new new ways of moving, very curious about sensations and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the other thing I think about the dance classes is, in addition to that stimulation without fright, like the other thing that's happening is everyone's syncing up. True, too, in yeah. both classes, in the yoga and the dance that's, classes. Everybody's doing right. the same thing at the same time. That's true. Right. So that there's this... That's almost, interesting, yeah, yeah. Yeah, rhythm that is, you know, attunement, basically. Well, with the dance classes, definitely. Yeah, there's rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's the unity focus, which which we now know that you know, relationship is one of the primary mediators of post-traumatic stress, if not the primary. Not not motivator, mitigator. It it it, mitigator, it can yeah. prevent <laughs> post-traumatic stress <laughs> attachment and relationship. Right. Yeah, Ari Shalev, he's a a physician who runs a uh, emergency hospital center in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, and he says the first thing he does when he gets traumatized patients is get their attachment figures in there, get their family. The first thing he says he has that connection going from the get-go because that is the best way to prevent post-traumatic stress disorder. And so then the work, can you walk us through a little bit about then what that looks like for, you know, in session or when, you work, when you're working with people individually? The primary interest is how the body reflects and sustains the presenting problem, whatever the client comes in with, whether they're coming in with anxiety, nightmares, relational problems, inability to control their rage, panic attacks, whatever it is. From the very first, I'm looking at implicit processes that have to do with the presenting problem because the body will always participate. The way someone uses their voices, the way they breathe, the way they walk, the way they make eye contact or don't, the way they hold their bodies, their stance and their posture, all that is related to whatever they're talking about. And so... Once you start seeing that with the client, you start to see that the body also holds a way through to healing. So at the beginning of a session, we have to, just like any psychotherapy, we we want to build rapport, build safety, because without safety and and relational connection, I think it was somebody, somebody said, Les Greenberg, I think, said that therapy can't really begin. And I, I feel that that's true. So we're tracking, we're making contact, both verbally and non-verbally. We're using our body, our own bodies in, in a way that's uniquely relevant to that client. And so we're kind of getting the lay of the land and building relationships. And then our work is, is mindfulness-based with the philosophy or the belief that change happens through helping clients become aware of how they're organized inside, meaning their habitual stance, their habitual emotions, their 
thoughts, not the specific thoughts, but the way that they think, how they organize inside rather than just conversation. So that's where mindfulness comes in. So Mm -hmm. we'll find a, a frame, what we call a frame, that sort of sets the intention for the session of what we're going to focus on. Like I might say to a client at some point, okay, so you'd really like to find out why you don't have the support you want in your life. Are you really interested in helping this panic go away? If they agree on that frame, then we go to mindfulness. Like, Mm -hmm. um, okay, I might ask a question like, what do you notice right now when you think of not getting support? And then because you know the body's going to react, maybe they'll collapse or maybe they'll mobilize. Uh, You know, emotions are going to come up, thoughts are going to come up. And that's mindfulness. Mindfulness is simply being aware of what's happening in the present moment in your body and your emotions and in, in your thoughts. And so we'll use particular stimuli like the thought of or considering not having support is going to affect the organizational experience. So it's very mindfulness-based. So we're discovering the components at the meta level of the issue rather than just talking about content. And so then it, it, you know, it depends. It depends on the client's goals. It depends on their regulatory capacity, whether they have a wider, narrow window of tolerance, whether it's primarily attachment-focused or primarily trauma-focused, although attachment and relationship are always in there. So that's how a session begins. And then, then from there, you know, memory, childhood memories might come up, dysregulation might come up, depending on what emerges then, certain techniques are are used, certain approaches. Right. So if a client is becomes dysregulated, either hypo too hypo aroused or, or hyper aroused, we will use somatic interventions to help the arousal come back into the window of tolerance. But if a childhood memory comes up of attachment rupture and they have a wide enough window of tolerance we might go right into the emotional pain of that, so we might even exaggerate the body stance. For example, one one man that I worked with recently was depressed, and of course he wanted to get through that depression, but he had a wide window of tolerance, and he had the typical downward turn of his spine and his head that goes with depression. Even in animals that are depressed, they have that shortened rectus abdominis muscle that goes from the pubic bones up that when it's shortened, it will pull your body over. And so instead of resourcing that posture, which I would have done if he was out of his window of tolerance, we would have maybe found some alignment, helped him with his breath or something. I asked him if he could exaggerate it because that took him right into the pain and the early formative memories that, that had to do with that depression. So it's exaggerated exaggerated it. He remembered feeling just defeated and not okay in himself as a child. And strong emotions came up. And so the path is different for every client, is what I'm trying to say. But we're wanting to, in each session, we want to end with something transformative, no matter how small. People often think a transformation has to be some big change, but it doesn't. It can just be a very 
small shift that the client can then take that kernel of change and and work with it in the in the week between sessions so mm-hmm. for this client his body naturally found a more aligned stance through going into the pain of that so his posture shifted along with his depression lifted a little bit so then during the week he could take that and practice that and work with it himself um and then we we go on so a couple of things I'm hearing in that is, again, the body as resource, and you're not explaining to him how to do it. You just are leading him into his own process, and then he naturally finds both the exaggeration and, and where that leads, but then also the resourcing that can come by playing with that. Well, I think you're, you're tapping into one of our principles that, that are is foundational to this work, and that's the idea that the client's answers to whatever is troubling them, are inside themselves. They're not inside me. They're inside the client. Gregory Bateson called it organicity, which means that every living system has its own inner intelligence. And in the mm-hmm. 70s, when I met Ron Kurt, he was really interested in, in Buddhism, and he brought... We talked a lot about principles, like the scientific and Buddhist principles that we take as critical to our work because all of us have a philosophical or spiritual guidelines, whether they're conscious or not. Some therapists go into therapy thinking they have the answers for the client. For example, they've got all the education. They can help. It's not my attitude. I I go into a session with the sense that they have their own answers. So then my job becomes one of helping them turn inside themselves deeply enough to find those answers. And that's where the body comes in. The body is not something to be fixed or changed. It holds so much intelligence and and wisdom. So that's really another principle, if you will, that that the body is it's not a mechanistic thing that we can just, you know, fix. It, it's just rich with knowledge and information that can help us um, in our evolution and our own healing. I love that. I love that. Uh, it's so appealing because it's definitely not the message that is typically, <laughs> I mean, just that statement you said the body is not something to be fixed or changed. That it's, it's just a peace. I mean, it provides peace just that statement does, right? Right, yeah. I think that's why these philosophical principles are so critical because clients feel that the moment they walk into your office. They implicitly sense where you're coming from. And if, if you really believe in organicity and mind, body, spirit, holism and in the wisdom of the body, that's going to be conveyed implicitly to the client. Mm-hmm. And that already is resourcing mm-hmm. as opposed to going in thinking, oh, there's something really wrong with this client. You know, I have to fix them. Maybe we'll find medication for them, although at times medication is very, very useful. We're just coming from a different orientation to therapy than, than at least the way I learned psychotherapy in the, in the 70s and 80s and 60s, all those years. The therapist was responsible for the answer. Right, and, uh, you know, to their patients, um, you know, to have that more of the hierarchical language, and then also through interpretation, it's through more cognitive, whereas this is really honoring the body, and I love sort of the notion of 
that there's wisdom that, you know, you're tapping into. Is there anybody that you wouldn't lead into their body as you, is that kind of what you were referring to when you were saying that some you would resource and some you wouldn't? Both of those I would lead into the body. Like with the client who's depressed, we used his body by exaggerating his his stance to go more deeply into the depression, into the roots of that. So we, I, I asked him to literally become more slumped over, more exaggerated yeah. as a little experiment right. and to find out what happens. There's no patient that I would not use the body with. However, you do need to be very resonant with how you use the body with each client. Like like some highly dissociative clients are terrified of their bodies. Their, their bodies have been the battleground for all the trauma they've experienced, and there's no way they want to go into their bodies because when they do, they get more dysregulated. Yeah, you have to find different ways to build confidence and to build resources. I sometimes I've asked, is, is there any place inside that feels good sometimes you don't even use the word body or some at least not at the beginning or sometimes I remember with one client when she would sit down she would she would really get frozen and sometimes mute and she would not be able to even share what was going on with her because the the she would get so frozen so I used to meet her at the door and say you know what let's start by walking Let's just walk around the block and talk a little bit. But we didn't talk about the body, but that was resourcing. Movement is resourcing. And if she could talk a little bit about her trauma while moving, that alone was healing because her her default defense was to freeze whenever the trauma came up. So there are ways of working with different clients with the body that's appropriate for them. It's not definitely not a one-size-fits-all. No, but I love what you're saying, though, is you still use the body. You just you just access it in different ways. So That's right, lot, yeah. Yeah, you kind of sneak up on it. <laughs> in some ways, in some ways you do, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like by the walking. That right. Even, the dance, even that original, the dancing and the yoga is, um, you know, the right. kind of conscious on the part of the patient, know, I mean, yeah. the client to know that that's what's happening. But it, it doesn't matter because it works anyway. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's really true. It doesn't all have to be made conscious because when the body, those, when those procedural tendencies start to shift, healing will happen. It's much more the experience that is important than the the narrative and the cognitive understanding. Clients have a new experience that opens the door for a new way of being. Uh, I really love that because also sometimes when we engage more cognitively, we're we're likely to hit a defense or, you know, to arouse the fear that is exactly yeah. might right, right. Right, um, and but, when you it, it it might not be integrated on all levels. It, you know, the it might arouse the fear or it might just be ideas without without really integrating. You mentioned the principles, and I think that you said two of them, that the, that the answers are inside the self and, and holds it there, and our job is just to help them access themselves. And then um, the uh, body is not something to be fixed or changed. Were there other principles that you wanted to mention? Yeah, they kind of flow into each other. Like if, if you really believe that the client has the answers that they need, that they have that intelligence inside, there's, there's no need to really push. 
what the therapist then needs to do is to find that kernel that is already moving towards healing and towards health and then help that expand and grow. So it's not a provocative or pushy kind of therapy, the principle that we would call nonviolence then. There's no need to be paradoxical or to be forceful if you if you believe in, in organicity. So it naturally... And within that, there's the idea of, that there's a unity there with you and your client, that you're not really separate. It's that non-hierarchical approach that you were, that I think you referred to. You're really connected, you know, that there's a, a sameness, there's not a separation. So that, then, see, all these principles really influence what your interventions are. So if, there, if, you, if you trust in that and sense that unity principle, you're going to be open yourself with your client. You're not going to try to trick them, really. You're going to be, you're going to be if, thinking out loud, sharing with them your thoughts. Not all your thoughts, but... Well, there's a transparency that you're mentalizing out loud on purpose. Yeah, yeah, you are. Uh-huh, you are mentalizing out loud, and, and you're working in sync. So I'm, I'm likely to say, you know, I wonder if we should follow this track, or... Should we go this other way? Like, what do you think? And we'll collaborate a lot together. Now, some people confuse unity to, to just mean sameness, but it doesn't. Like, like if, you, if you're in that principle, you're also aware of differences. Like Shelley Harrell always says, you know, we're, we are, we're completely alike in some ways. We're not alike at all. We're very unique. And some of us are more alike than others. So we each have our, our cultural context, our social location, where we come from, we belong to different groups. Like I'm not a person of color, so I don't belong I don't belong to that group. But in the principle of unity and I want to work within that multicultural perspective of, of honoring those differences as well as uh, our similarities. Oh, it makes perfect sense. What what comes to my mind is the notion of um, harmonizing, where that each person has their own distinct voice, but then there's this connection across. That if we get it right, that it's we amplify, you know, one another. We're not competing. We're we're collaborating. Right. It's, but, I mean, but, I th- without, but without giving up our differentiation. Well, I think that's true on an individual basis, and I also that, think that's true on a cultural basis. And that's that's important in terms of the body, too, because the body as a resource is different depending on your, the cultural context. So that that's a way that these principles fit together. Like, like we really do honor the wisdom of the body. That's another another principle and we honor that that wisdom may may look very different for one person than another different postures are more as a resource in other cultures if you're in a marginalized culture for example a collapsed posture might be a resource for you in in a specific context i was talking with an asian woman recently who was saying just that her collapsed posture was a resource for her because she was Asian and she's experienced so much discrimination and so much bullying and et cetera. So 
that's a different kind of resource for her than someone who grew up in an abusive family. Who yeah, kept I love what you're so small to not be seen in that family. Those are really important considerations with the body. The uh, I love it. Multicultural perspective. That's right, and you're and you're looking for the wisdom, right, versus pathologizing something. Absolutely, that's that's a general principle, and the wisdom of not only the individual but the social location of that yes. person. Yeah, that's right. And without that, without that context, and without that history, it's hard to see the whole person. But if when you change the frame to the historical aspects of the culture and the um, community, then you're able to see them more as a whole being. That's right. That's right. And 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 I, I think that many methods, including sensory motor psychotherapy, come from a more Eurocentric perspective. And and we need to all of us, sensory motor psychotherapy, many, many methodologies need to take a look at that. Because that's not inclusive. That's only coming from a white dominance perspective, quite frankly. And so we we're looking at that in our school and and taking steps to change that in our teaching and future and the, yeah and, and t- yeah. sounds like taking steps to learn you know because it's not it might not be in our own body of experience but it's like uh, going out and and learning the attachment research in general is um even though it has been done internationally there's it can't be an accident that you know that if you have if you're married and you own a home and you have a good job that has possibility for advancement that there, there's a few of these factors that then you're like 98% chance that you are secure on the um, AI. Right, yeah. That's right. So that's that it's, it's exactly right. Embedded, it's embedded in that versus... That's, that's uh, right there. It's a, a certain model that doesn't uh, speak cross-culturally. Right. Right. The health, the health of um, being vigilant and, you know, what we would, might call preoccupied, but of looking out for danger. <laughs> If you're in a community where the danger is real, or it also makes me think when you're talking about the body, that there was a study that African American children that have very positive relationships with their mothers compared to Anglo American children who also have positive relationships with their mothers, their waking cortisol level of the African American children are higher just upon wakening, unrelated to relationship with. So that would translate exactly, you know, and there's not a good explanation for that other than this very deeply ingrained historical, the genetic level, like in the Holocaust when it actually changed your genes of, of a whole culture. Oh, like with gene expression? Yeah, it's with gene expression. Uh-huh. Um, but with the strain that the community has been under for so many years. That exactly, yeah. 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 Right. And I think that that we need to be aware of that in terms of the body, too. Like in that environment, postures that reflect different kinds of trauma-based defenses are adaptive and and have nothing to do with the family context, nothing to do with attachment, and have everything to do with the danger that many marginalized peoples find themselves in on a daily basis. So a collapsed posture or a mobilized posture can be very adaptive in those contexts. And we can't automatically assume that it has to do with attachment relationships. I I think that's, you know, are you familiar with Patricia Crittenden's work? 
Not she was a awesome. lot, no. I know you sent me something on that this morning, I think, but I haven't had a chance to look at it. Well, one of the reasons that I love it is that it's, she was also a student of Mary Ainsworth, but she definitely had a more wider cultural lens and was very interested in just the body's response to danger and things like that. But I was wondering, do you know other folks besides, it sounds like your school, that are pursuing this multicultural, you know, really trying to, uh, being interested in this and incorporating this into our work? What I'm thinking is that, if, if you know, our listeners may be very interested in pursuing updating and and is there someone that you know and respect it there are just tons of people who are working in a multicultural perspective shelly harrell is she's a pepperdine she and i are collaborating together writing a, a paper right now hopefully to turn into a book on racism and trauma and how to address both from a white dominance perspective because and from a, a marginalized community's perspective Christine Caldwell and her colleagues just put out a book called Oppression in the Body. That's an edited volume of different authors who have been discriminated against for different reasons, like for being overweight, for being trans, for being Latino. So that that's a very interesting book. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote a blurb for that. I thought that was a courageous endeavor. Now, also, do you mind if we take half a step back? Because I want to catch people up if they're if they're less familiar with your work. One of the things it's just now part of my lexicon this window of tolerance. But some people might not quite understand what that means, and I think it's a really good encapsulation of many of these ideas. This is your reference, right? Yeah. Well, here's the history behind that. In the I think it was in the early '90s, I was thinking so much about my traumatized clients and how they couldn't regulate arousal. And I grew up in a musical family. My mother actually taught me to play the piano before I went to school. So by the time I was seven, I was playing sonatas. But that doesn't, I'm not an accomplished pianist at all. But but (laughs) the language of music was really, I was taught that language and taught to read music before I learned to read. So music is very much a part of my life. And I was thinking about how we modulate arousal through music, like through how loud or how soft, how fast, how slow we play, whether we're playing in a minor key or a major key, that we can really manipulate people's emotions and arousal through music. And I was thinking of modulation, like how we modulate from one key to another. So I made this graph, and I call it the modulation module, that is the same graph that we now call the window of tolerance with hyperarousal, at the very high end, over, like like if you think of two parallel lines, a distance apart, that's the window of tolerance, or your optimal arousal zone, within which you can process whatever's coming up from the inside and whatever stimuli are occurring from the outside. You can process that. You can integrate it. But if you get too aroused into hyperarousal over the top line of the window of tolerance, your integrative capacity is compromised, as Pierre Genet said back in the 1800s. And if you get too low in the hypo-aroused or dorsal vagal zone, below the bottom line, your integrative capacity is also compromised. So this was the modulation model for years, like a decade. And we taught it in our classes, and, and we taught students to recognize the signs of when arousal was approaching the upper end because you want to catch 
arousal before it goes into that zone right. where clients right. can no longer integrate. So that's where resources come in at, at the extremes of either end. And then in 1999, Dan Siegel's book, The Developing Mind, came out. And in that book, he referenced the same phenomenon and called it the window of tolerance. So we adapted his term because it was more catchy and more accessible. <laughs> Dan, Dan made up the term. I made up the, the graph and the, the concept. So, you know, we use it with his blessing. But it is, it's so valuable for especially therapists to conceptualize their client's regulatory capacity because every every client has a different window of tolerance. Like the client that I talked about earlier who was depressed, he actually had a wide window of tolerance, which is why we could do a physical movement that would take him into more dysregulation, strong emotions. He was sobbing. Whereas a traumatized client, anyone who had a narrow window of tolerance, you wouldn't want to do that with because they would shoot up into the hyperarousal zone. They wouldn't be able to integrate. Yeah, and I learned that actually uh, in a very painful way in the the 70s because I was asked to be a uh, consultant therapist for the University of Colorado's mental health center. And they referred to me, these young women, these college students who who weren't able to experience any sexual pleasure. And nobody understood trauma back in the 70s. You're probably not old enough to remember, but you know, <laughs> Charles Bigley's book hadn't come out. Judy Herman's book hadn't come out. Nobody was reading Pierre Genet. He was lost at that time to, to our field. So I didn't understand trauma either, and I was helping these young women go into strong emotions related to their, their childhood memories, and they were getting worse. They were getting more dysregulated, more dissociative, and I didn't understand why. But I understand it now. It's because they had narrow windows of tolerance. They had all been sexually abused as children, and they didn't have the regulatory capacity to integrate the strong emotions that I was helping them re-experience in therapy. So I had to really change my tactic to, I remember saying to my colleague, you know, I'm I'm not going to worry about the emotions. I'm just going to keep them in their bodies and try to keep them in relationship with me. And lo and behold, they started getting better. So that was my introduction to how attachment-related emotional interventions or approaches can fall short in working with our traumatized clients who don't have the integrative capacity to address attachment-related needs, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, but even helping that, you know, co-regulating them into the window of tolerance and, you know, con- helping them keep their thinking but staying connected to you and keep their... Right. You know, be, that, that, I mean, I see that still highly attachment-related work. and It um, is. You know, yeah, it is. Yeah. But, but not... When I, when I, I guess I wasn't clear. When I mean attachment, I mean resolving those emotional wounds that go with when your father is sexually abusing you. you know? Right, right. That's where I was going. I was, I was helping them experience the deep, betrayal and pain of that and they weren't ready for that yet but you're right right, exactly the the co-regulation of using the relationship and using somatic resources to help widen their window of tolerance that's definitely attachment focused as well our work is very attachment focused i come from an attachment 
background. I mean, that's mm-hmm. relationship has always been my front and center. Right. So it's it's not uh, technique oriented where you're applying a technique to a person. It's no. All very, it's very individualized. It's very relationally based. Yes. Um, that's right. I think one of the compliments I I treasure is Philip Bromberg. When he saw my work, he he said, "You are not a handmaiden to your technique." And I, I took that as a big compliment because if you're oh, a handmaiden. Oh, wow. That, <laughs> that is. Yeah. That's a wonderful compliment. Yeah, yeah. You're not, you're not, I we're never trying to make our clients fit our method, which can be a, a danger when you have a methodology that you make your client fit your method then rather than make your method fit your client. We're using the body, yes, but it's never in a generic way. It's always very individual. Oh, I think that is so vital. It is so easy, especially therapists can gather around a technique and begin to learn it and feel right. emboldened and yeah. then the, and end up unintentionally, you know, it becomes, again, like top down instead of this organic in the moment dance. That yeah, you're, you're looking for your client to adapt to that technique. Which right. is why I don't like formulas. I think we are way too complex for formulaic work. I mean, I understand that brand new therapists might need uh, some sort of roadmap, but formulaic methods, I don't, methodology doesn't honor the complexity of, of each person that comes into our practice, in my mind. And no. It's not fun. Who wants to do a formula? It's much more creative to, you know, follow. And work with that unique situation. <laughs> well, but unique... I think it's a, it's a really important subject, actually, because I think I experience sometimes exactly that. And then what happens when we get really, you know, that if you, once you learn something and you turn around and you teach it, then you really actually believe it's better than other things. And so it sets people up, if the client isn't participating in the formula, to unintentionally pathologize them. Well, um, right. Yes, that, that, I think that's true. It and makes them feel it, inadequate or like they're not doing it right. Or, and that's I, right. So whatever the technique is, even, even for example, I think even, I mean, everything is subject to that, which is I, I love Phil Bromberg. I mean, believe me, I, oh, I, would, I would love to bring Phil Bromberg. He's not a traveler, but oh, when no, you said his name, my, my heart just opened up. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, he's, I think, the most poetic writer in our field. His books are yeah. pure joy. Highly, yeah. highly recommend him. He's on our advisory board and has has helped me understand psych, relational psychoanalysis in ways that I surely didn't understand before. <laughs> right. I mean, if you, if you think about it, what author could we say where that, you know, I, I flutter, right? Or, <laughs> like, yeah. It's, uh, that's it. it's, it's the effect of his prose and his uh, yes. work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's beautiful. So then it, what about... You've talked some about some of the adjustments that you've made. Is there anything going forward that you're beginning to look towards or any other adjustments that you've learned and shifted your thinking, you know, so we finish this arc? We're really working right now as as an institute and a trainer body, administrative and trainer body, in looking at the Eurocentricity of of sensory motor psychotherapy because Mm -hmm. it does come from a white Eurocentric model. And we're looking at how, like you said, we can pathologize clients, for example, if we're not honoring social location, like that we've already talked about. So 
with the body. So we're looking at our own implicit bias very deeply. We meet every other week on this, doing an in-service with all our trainers, with professionals on implicit bias, because I think as predominantly white organization, not entirely, but predominantly, we have to be very willing to look at white dominance and the privilege that comes with that and how how we can't help but be steeped in that growing up in this culture. Because, I mean, for me, growing up in the 50s and 60s, I mean, I remember as a, I think I was about four, seeing the separate fear for African-American children and asking my mother what was going on, you know. So we're steeped in that. Even though I marched in civil rights movement, et cetera, I am steeped in a culture that has a ton of implicit bias that's not recognized. And that can come through in our teaching and the way we use the body. So we're really looking at that deeply in the Institute. And that's that's very exciting and very personal because I have nieces and nephews who are black and they're... Mm-hmm. We're very excited about this as well. <laughs> well I bet. That's a big tricky. movement forward in, in the whole organization. Because it does get tricky because many of the people probably that you're training and, and many of us in the field consider ourselves liberal and, you know, on the right side of justice and all of these things. But like, well, there's but no way work, we can protect ourselves from that's right. bias. No matter how liberal we are, it's still there. And and the worst mistake we can make is saying that we're not that we're not racist, because yes. we are. This is a racist culture, and we're we're just steeped in it from the time we're little children. So we right. we can't. We have to look at that awareness before we can. And we have to gather knowledge. Something I learned from Shelley Harrell as well, she talked about this at one of the consultations our school did with her, that without that awareness, any skill we apply will will fall flat. It won't go deep, and we're not that kind of organization. So we really need to look at that on a very personal level and then acquire the knowledge and the skill to apply it in our work. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited about that. I'm horrified as as are many of our trainers at how ignorant we've been like like my mission was to bring the body into the mainstream and i i think that that mission i think i've accomplished not single-handedly but i've been a part of that mission that mm. fulfilled but it hasn't been my mission but it's becoming my mission so that yes. that's exciting and you know then on other levels we're looking at and I'm interested in couples' work and children and family, and I'm also very interested in these these principles, these philosophical, spiritual principles that really create the context for therapy, because I think most therapists aren't aware that they have principles, that they're, they have beliefs that they're coming from. And in mm-hmm. sensory motor therapy, we do have a certain orientation based on Ron Kurtz's work and mm-hmm. adding to that. And do you have those principles? Is there something like a PDF or anything like that that we could share with our listeners? Or No, but I'm writing uh, about it right now. Okay. Uh, Bonnie, Actually, Bonnie Goldstein and I did a, a conference, the, the Interpersonal Neurobiology Conference that we do every year for, gosh, I've been a part of that conference, I think, for 16 years now mm-hmm. with Dan Siegel. And, and it, did, yeah, the one in L.A.? Yeah, the one in L.A. And a few years ago we did one with, that was focused on consciousness with Dan and Deepak Chopra and and others. 
mm-hmm. and we're writing a chapter on that where, where we talked about these principles. Bonnie Goldstein, oh, one, one of our trainers. So that book will be coming out probably this year, and I don't even know the name of it. But Dan Siegel and Marion Solomon are the editors, and it's through Norton. We're completing that chapter. I mean, I've written quite a bit on, on manuals. Uh, Ron Kurtz's book, mm-hmm. The Hakomi Method, 1992, gives brief reference to them, I think. But we've also added to them, like, one of my appreciations of Philip Bromberg is that it's his work on therapeutic enactments. And, and I'm not quite sure what we can call it as a principle, but there's something it is that concept fits into our overall orientation as therapists, that we we don't treat therapeutic enactments as something, as a mistake, as something wrong. There's something very right about enactments that speaks to the, the humanness of a therapist and client coming together and the evolutionary thrust of both parties towards a higher organization. So these enactments are part of that when there's a therapeutic enactment where the histories of each come together into an impasse or a stalemate where you feel like therapy is just not going anywhere and you start to lose your confidence as a therapist. There's intelligence in that. Like there's a big opportunity there. That's not an error. It's not a mistake. It's an opportunity. Like somebody was doing a workshop on uh, the mistakes of therapy, of therapists. But I wouldn't, I mean, Philip really taught me not to call it a mistake because it isn't. Mm-mm. Most therapists look at it as a mistake. So that fits with our philosophical orientation. But I don't know what to call it, the, all the, like organicity, unity, you know, nonviolence, body, spirit, holism, presence, mindfulness, and they'll have a, a kind of a poetic. Uh, and spiritual, yes. But no, I know exactly what you mean because if if you're applying all these other principles, and there's no way, and 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 the, the body, we're following the body, and then the body ends up in a situation like this, then it's it's you know it's the symptom is the solution. It's there's wisdom in it and something to be learned by it versus pathologizing either the patient or the therapist or their interaction or their interaction, as long as there's like this third looking down, working, right. you know, trying to make it more explicit and um, yeah. decode it. But uh, well, I guess yeah, decoding it together. It. Yeah, that's right. And I think that, that that takes a lot of humility on the part of the therapist to be willing to look at yourself and realize, as Philip said, it's not just a story about the client. It's a story about the two of you, yeah. you know, and, and your... You can't escape your history. And um, I guess where it would become pathological would be if there was no one, if there was a non-collaboration or just a refusal to look at it from this third eye. If it just stays in an enactment and never gets, if it's only if it gets negotiated it's, relationally. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think the tendency, therapists can either blame themselves and or blame their clients. And, right. and once that comes in, you know, you've lost the chance to, to see it as a salubrious opportunity that that's yes. part of that evolutionary progression, you know? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's no accident that certain therapists and certain clients come together, and I think searching for that, the intelligence in that, means you, you do honor the enactments that come forward. 
Oh, yes. Oh, that's beautiful. I really like how you said that. Now, for um, just as we wrap up, is there anything, so for folks that are not therapists, is there any message you would like to deliver to them specifically about, you know, a piece of advice or a suggestion related to this based on what you know? Well, I, I would say in terms of the body, to start to get curious about the body, like get curious about your posture, not judgmental about it. To start to inquire into the wisdom of your own body rather than wishing it would change. Like if you have panic attacks or if your shoulders are hunched up or if you have a collapsed spine or if you don't like the way your body moves or you notice a certain characteristic of it, start to become curious about that and see what it can teach you. Like become aware of it and mindful of it. I mean, I think that's how I use my own body as a laboratory. Like I, I really notice when my body, you know, when I get when I get tight or when I get my breath gets short or when I start to puff out my chest a little, like like take on a, an oh, attitude yeah. of power or something or an attitude or a slumped posture. All those tell me a lot about myself. And when I can get mm-hmm. curious about that in the moment and, and keep that sense of mindfulness of my own body in the moment and shift my response, my physical response, then it also can really help the, the struggles I have in my life, like relationally or mm-hmm. whatever, performance-wise. And, um, mm-hmm. Like I know, for example, when I'm teaching, I used to have such awful stage fright that I, I thought I'm going to have to give up teaching. I just can't do it. And then... And then I I realized, well, if I just keep my body moving, like keep my spine fluid, I noticed that I I could get very stiff. And if I just keep my body moving, I'm fine. Uh, That became a huge resource for me. So we can, that's that's above and beyond psychotherapy. We we can all use our bodies in that way. Because we can become curious about our physicality, and that's a that's a lifelong your body's a lifelong laboratory of learning. So, and that's a huge one because if if even that's all that happens for our listeners right now, it, it, it can really because the other thing it does is it embodies the notion of attunement, and because if, as you're aware of a stiffness or and then maybe a micro adjustment to try something on, what we're mm-hmm. what we're also what's also <clears throat> happening relationally is we're really attuning to ourselves and then as we'll be much more natural when we're able to do that for ourselves to be able to do that in a dyad across you know relationship yeah exactly and i would i would say you know first be curious about it that tension in my spine is a fear response you know i'm pulling everything in uh it's kind of I don't want to be seen kind of response, and that, which goes back to my, my childhood, right? So, right? so get curious about it first so it's not just trying to fix or change something in your body. The movement of my spine now isn't, isn't an overriding of that fear. It's a yeah. communication that I, I don't have to be there now. I would say to the listeners, don't just try to change your body. Get curious about the wisdom of it, and then and then the the resources come naturally. Right, right. No, I I, I like that. Again, fine tuning what I said because it, it goes right back to the principles. It's not something to be fixed, and that's right. what I was thinking. It was I was when I was thinking of micro adjustments, like exploring what about this, yeah, and what about that, and what about yeah, that. yeah, but, exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but I love that because that's again, it's just so principle oriented of to trust it and to trust yourself and 
And it's also just, I can also feel just as we are, you know, kind of finishing with this, it's very non-shaming. The way you talk about it, even if my spine is hunched or my shoulders are down or or if I'm haughty, you know. Yeah, uh, right, yeah. That it's, if we think of it bottom up, that our body is expressing something or trying to tell us something, it really takes the shame out of that. Well, right. That's exactly right. And and to realize that that your body has adapted to everything that's happened in your life. So we develop patterns that are often adaptive for our childhoods that we're still into. You know, we superimpose the past on our present presence, but but that it was a creative and adaptive response. Uh, I think that's what you're talking to. Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much. I feel like we've covered a lot of really great, great stuff. I know people are going to be really happy to uh, hear from you. And if they would like to reach out to you or learn about your school, can you share the best way to do that? Oh, sure. They can. Our school, we have a website, sensorymotor.org. And if you Google sensory motor psychotherapy, you'll you'll find many resources and et cetera. So, yeah, that's the way to find us. Okay, just go great. to the website. You can contact the school. If you want to contact me personally, just put contact the school and put attention, Pat Ogden, and they'll forward to me. Okay, awesome. And then uh, we'll also link, of course, your books and also some of the books that we mentioned and the work that or you know, the books that you mentioned here too. So including Phil Bromberg. <laughs> yes. Um, so for our listeners, thank you so much. I really, really want to challenge you and invite you to try these things on and look into more of Pat Ogden's work because it will just take you further and further with this material. This is just an introduction. So, Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate your time. And Okay, you're ready, very welcome. Ready. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening, and I appreciate you hanging in there. And we are going to get back on track in our normal and hopefully getting better and better audio as we go forward. So for those of you who enjoyed it, please move on over to our Facebook page and give us a shout out, say hello, like us, join us, share us. There's a second one that's a private Facebook page where that we just asked to exchange that for your email address. We send out an email like hardly ever, <laughs> but we are wanting to build a online community and there you can post and chat and visit with other neuro nerds like all of us. You can share your own links and stories and ask questions and all that kind of fun community stuff, which we want to promote. Okay, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you soon. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.